players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Him to Torak, Liliana of the Veil, True Name Nemesis, and many others. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and search for eternal glory, glory, glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashanral on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello folks, welcome to another episode of The Eternal Glory Podcast. This one is episode 49, Making Mental Muscles. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by Bryant, with a T, Cook, and Brian Koval. How are you all doing tonight? Time to flex, Phil. We're making those mental muscles. You just got to show them off. Mm. Mm. I'm flexing the fact that uh, Bryant was uh, referred to as the other Brian. <laughs> uh, that, that's why Phil hit the T on Bryant's name so hard in our intro. Uh Apparently, somebody was linked to something that showed Bryant that someone was like, yeah, Brian and the other Brian. <laughs> I also like that I'm the primary Brian, so sorry. I'm fine with that. You have much more accolades than I do, or more accolades. Words are difficult, but uh, yeah, you can be number one. Well, you have more letters in your real name than I do. So uh, I, where do, I, I guess I'm ahead of you alphabetically as well, because I spell it with an I, like a... Like a civilized person of the modern age, not a rustic barbarian. <laughs> anyway, Barbarian Bryant, um, how are you? What have you been up to? Not a whole lot. Uh, my life is pretty uneventful. That said, I did go through the process of switching comic book shops. I've been thinking about it, and I'm like, oh, you know, I haven't gotten any comic books in like a year. So I contacted my shop, and they just like for weeks told me to like, check back in or i needed to do this or that and um, to like two months went by and i was like i haven't gotten a real answer and then when i called them they're like it's not our job to let you know when new comics come out but like they told me when they went on hold so it just turns out i was like a year behind on comic books so i switched to my friend's store in pennsylvania uh cloud city games uh shout out aaron garatio and his crew uh they sent me a giant box just full of everything from that I've missed over the last year. And I've just been reading comic books the last two weeks. It's been delightful. That sounds great. Nice. <laughs> I love the uh, instant karma of like, it's not our job to blah, 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 blah. And you're like, okay, bye. Pretty much. <laughs> see you, See you later years of business. Yeah. Just don't treat your customers poorly. It's pretty simple. Speaking of my customers, Feels good. I get to be rid of mine soon. The end of the school year is in sight. Um, tomorrow I will be sitting down to finalize my grades. And then I have three more days with the students, basically. And that's that. Do you tell the students' uh, parents, do you refer to them as, like, as customers? Like, in your interviews? Like, do you do, like, one-on-one -on -one teacher? This joke's bad. Let's just move on. <laughs> yep, muck it. Bryant doesn't know enough about what teachers do to make that joke. Uh, but... Uh, I, I'm right there with you, Phil. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. I have Wednesday, Thursday, work from home Friday, 
I have a day off on Monday uh, because I'll be traveling and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So I have uh, five more work days this school year. And then I get to be a full-time magic content creator for two and a half months, whatever that means. Yeah, I'm I'm still doing another summer job for three weeks, so I won't quite be in that boat, but I'll I'll probably ramp up things a little bit. Um, I, I guess since we're like going into this, uh, I think both of us have the same like first world problem right now of having a shit ton of things in the donation queue that we're trying to get through. So the like wait isn't uh-huh. too long. Uh, and it kind of puts us in this weird situation because we don't want to burn ourselves out making content. But, you know, if we donate, if you donate to us, we don't want it to be a month before you see your stuff. Yeah, uh, I am firm. I am a full month into uh, donation queues. Like if I recorded one a day, I'd be recording for a month at this point. And that's not even counting. uh we're halfway through May at this point. On June 1st, I'm going to have a dozen Patreon lists who get it every month. Uh, it's actually 14 because I have two highest tier subscribers and then the 12 medium size ones. So like 14 lists are going to drop on the first of the month. So I think run. I'm going to take a running start into summer and just record seven days a week or release seven days a week. That I'll probably record like three days a week, just two or three videos a day and just lock and load and uh people be ready for actual daily content for a while because i would like to get ahead of this queue i've had a few people mention on my comments like hey we realize you're releasing one a day please don't burn yourself out and uh, i've felt it a little bit recently but not too bad i imagine recording seven days a week would be pretty tough but if you're just like building doing a few a day that wouldn't be as bad yeah i mean the the great thing about YouTube is that you don't have to be anywhere specifically. Like I can wake up 9am, record a video, work my entire day, or just do whatever I'm going to do that day. And then like, it's 10pm, I'm not quite tired, record another one. And like, that that's not like streaming where I'd have to be live at 10am and live at 10pm. Like That'll just be like Thursday and Friday next week is when you're going to see it. So there's a lot of freedom there and the like burn yourself out uh ultimately i'm playing magic <laughs> like I, i'm just uh, it's an excuse to queue into magic online leagues with fun decks and it's hard to burn that out um like the the work itself isn't bad uh, it's just whatever editing i do on the back end is really the only work involved because you don't really have to twist my arm to play magic. So I five times a week. I think the burnout aspect comes a lot from Twitch and not YouTube. Oh, hundred percent agreed. With the yep. uh, like, so a lot of streamers get mentally taxed because one, they're expected to interact with chat, but they're also expected to play at a very high level while being entertaining live, which is like something you have when you record on YouTube, but you don't have to interact with chat. And on top of that, like you have like fear of being ghosted. And all these other things. But players also like to watch people that are successful. So there's this pressure on you to always perform well. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. About like, you know, imposter syndrome and stuff. But that's really real when you're playing live. And when you misplay live, it feels a lot worse mentally. uh, Because you have 100 eyes, 200 eyes judging you. Um, That sort of thing. I think it's also easier to neglect your personal health when you're a streamer. Um, I'm going to call out a friend of mine here. Like, Arkin 
I don't know how many arc hours Arkin spends streaming, but it is an ungodly amount. Like every, every time I, I log on Twitch, like he he's there, he's streaming. I don't know how many hours he puts in, um, but I, I imagine it's just a ton. And being live for that long is is hard. Yeah, when I was streaming live, uh, I I did like four to five hour sessions. Like I never did like eight hours or God forbid, 24 uh, but in those like five hours, I would basically like fill my drink at the beginning. And when it was gone, it was gone. I did not eat. And it was like, nor I was normally like streaming during dinner hours. It was like five to 10 PM. And I just would just like shove whatever food I could in my body straight before I went to bed when I was done with the stream. And, Cause I felt like I always had to be on and nobody wanted to watch me eat. And like, uh, some some streamers balance that like I watch uh, Justin Ganari. I am actually level one and he'll just leave his computer chair unoccupied, leave the room, come back with a bowl of cereal and sit there and eat it waiting for the next round of fire. And he's got that comfort and like he gets viewers. He's partnered now. Like congrats, Justin, by the way. Uh, so like that's working for him. But I never felt got into that groove where like I felt like I was on stage performing something at all points not that i was inviting people into my home to watch me play magic which is like another thing that you could do so yeah it, finding your spot and like being cool with it and all of that like just uh, the amount of burnout i got from twitch like i'm still like oh my god why did i even do that for the time that i did it we talked about it a little bit in the pre-show but people also have different expectations or different reasons for viewing, I guess I should say. Like some people want to watch for educational purposes and some people want to watch for entertainment. And you're never going to hit every audience all at once. Uh, I received a comment this week that my videos would be better if they were at 4x speed because someone doesn't want to watch me think. That said, there's somebody out there probably learning how to play whatever deck I'm playing that's actually really interested in that thought process. And it's just like sort of difficult to always hit that. And then if you have the added pressure of being live on Twitch, it's just another thing. And eventually things start to give And There's a bunch of streamers out there that have talked about their mental health issues. And now they're, it's a little more acceptable now to talk about going to therapy and that sort of thing. Um, but it hasn't always been. Yeah. When I switched from uh, live streaming to recorded content, the number one, comment i got f from just human beings when i was interacting with people at magic tournaments not like online comments they would be like oh i really miss your stream or like are you going to come back to streaming and i realized that those people don't really care much what i'm doing they just want to hang out and uh like there were a number of people who are in my chat the whole time every time and those people really do just like dedicate their evening to hanging out in in twitch it's like going out to the bar for the evening like go watch a hockey game at the bar with your friends like they just go to twitch instead and i'm sure people listening like some of you do that too but that was never what i wanted like i actually hate live streams i think they move too slowly like i want a crisp edited video uh with like that keeps moving i want to be able to turn it on 2x speed i want to be able to jump forward if i i i've seen what i need to see here and like going being a primary youtube consumer and trying to watch twitch is somewhat maddening <laughs> so like just and trying to be a twitch streamer when i'm in that mindset it is like i'm already like starting you know 10 feet back so uh i i just didn't appreciate 
that people did were there just to hang out more than get strategic content until I was already done doing it. Yeah. Like we could probably talk about like parasocial relationships for like half an hour going off of this point. Cause there's a lot of really interesting things going on there. Um, but like we have kind of a meaty episode today. Um, does anyone kind of want to put a pin in this in any way, or should we just kind of move on? Let's move on. We can always circle back to this another time. Yeah, we have plenty to talk about tonight. Uh, and and it's all like directly related. Like we we're talking about making mental muscles and I, I'm not going to jump fully into the the prime content yet because I mean, our intro needs to be minimum 25, 30 minutes, right? To stay on brand. Uh, but we are talking about tonight, like how to uh, stay healthy mentally in a lot of ways uh, when you play magic, especially competitively. Yeah, I don't I don't feel like I have to worry about tilt anymore. Like, I feel like I'm past that. But as far as like other mental health things related to streaming and content production, oh, I've, I've still got progress I can make on that front. 100%. Yep. All right. Well, we have a lot of that to talk about later. So what's going on with, uh, we already talked about our, our thick donation cues. Um, I, I actually, my second bullet to talk about uh, with uh, magic updates was that I was considering live streaming on YouTube once in a while over the summer, but I think we just talked me out of it. All right. Good job. So, boss. Uh, a mutual friend between uh cooler Brian and I is that uh, Andre Sagara he streams to YouTube and Twitch at the same time using a third-party thing. And uh, he said at this point he's more interested in YouTube Live than he is Twitch. Uh, it's just like a better experience for the streamer. I don't know why he thinks that, but that is what he's told me. And I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, Alpha Gaming this morning, uh, or maybe yesterday, but I saw the video this morning. Uh, he switched from Twitch to YouTube a few months ago. And he said he is making $10,000 a month less on YouTube than he was on Twitch. Like he was in like the top 0.03% of streamers or something. And then just quit, went over to YouTube. And uh, he he made a video of why and what the difference is and what he sees the future of growth is. And uh, basically he, like YouTube has a significantly larger existing audience than Twitch does. It's also just like anyone. Right, yeah. Anyone with the internet is probably on YouTube some amount of the time. About Twitch, you have to be looking for something. Um, you can set your own sub tiers. Like Twitch, it's like you're subbed four ninety nine. Like that's that's it. And there might be some higher level tiers, but Twitch sets them. On YouTube, it's like Patreon. You can have like a one dollar, two dollar, five dollar, fifty dollar sub tiers, uh, for like the monthly recurring subs. So you have a lot more control over it. Uh, but his big point was that now that everyone else is getting into live streaming, he thinks that Twitch is going to die because all it is is live streaming. Like he compared it to Snapchat, which was huge for a while. But now Facebook has stories. Twitter has fleets. Uh, everyone is doing what Snapchat was doing. And Snapchat is dead because other platforms are able to absorb the one thing that it did. And now YouTube has live streaming. Instagram's got live streaming. Uh, like you can live stream on Facebook. like, And those do other things too. He thinks that Twitch has a limited time frame unless it comes up with something really big to offer that nobody else is. So he, he's investing in the future by streaming to YouTube instead of Twitch right now. Makes a lot of sense. I like that. 
if I wasn't already established on Twitch, I wouldn't be streaming on Twitch. I, I, I think the platform has a lot of problems, but you know, this, this isn't a inside baseball episode. So. We'll so there on. was a period about two years ago where I was like, you know, what? maybe I'll become a Twitch streamer in my free time. I'll stream like a few nights a week. And no matter when I, because I work a nine to five, like many of you, um, but I live on the East coast and I would go to stream every single night. There's so much competition in that time frame. Uh, yeah. Like there's Phil Jarvis, Arkin, Honorog, like especially for legacy content, there's only so many people that watch legacy on Twitch. And I was like, Oh, I guess I'll get 50 people, which is fine. But like, you're never going to hit partner with 50 people watching. Uh, so like you're, chances to monetize are not that successful where on youtube people can watch you in their pajamas in bed or you know when they're on the toilet it doesn't matter um because it's at their convenience and you know if someone's looking for that weird deck that phil's playing uh they can find it yep and even if they're not looking for that weird deck that phil's playing they might find it if youtube thinks it makes sense for them like the algorithm is very powerful yeah I mean, I might have to replace, like, Karanos as my primary deity with the YouTube algorithm. Yeah, uh, praise be to to the algorithm. I don't know why so, the God uh, of Storms I, is your deity anyway. Dude, Kar- Karanos... Because it doesn't actually storm. Karanos has bailed my ass out of so many games of Magic that I did not deserve to win. Yeah, Bergy is the true God of Storm, the mechanic, but Karanos is the God of Grind. Like... Karanos just brings me back to my Splinter Twin days, which I remember fondly. Mm. Glory days. Yep, that's good stuff. So I for- forgot about an update, which I'm not sure if is a life update or an MTG update, but it's probably both. Uh, you guys can see me on camera right now. You might notice that I'm in an enormous, fluffy, lazy boy chair that uh, finally arrived. I think I mentioned it like a month ago when I ordered it, but it's here and it's installed and... It is luxurious, and I can't wait to sit in it for hours at a time and record videos in the By future. the way, does it legit glow purple? It's blue, but yes. the So it, it, it has dual-wielding cup holders. There is a cup holder in each arm of this chair, and then there, and those light up blue. Uh, and then underneath the chair is another blue, like, running light. Like It's like a Fast and the Furious vehicle. Uh, but the cup holders and running lights are blue. I don't know why. I wouldn't have chosen that feature. It was just built in automatically. But since I have it, I'm going to roll with it. You know, like growing up, I have this like idea in my head of what a recliner looks like. Yours appears to be much smaller than in my head what a like recliner lazy boy looks like. Uh, or I'm just much bigger than the average person. Okay. Like... This is a uh, uh, an ongoing problem in my life. Just like I'm, I'm six three, by the way, for people who have not encountered me in real life. And when I lean my head back, I can feel the headrest like at the base of my skull, like right where it connects to the neck, like where the hard stuff turns into soft stuff, like that part of your head. And the headrest is supposed to be like firmly on the hard stuff, but it's completely on the soft stuff. And if I was just two inches shorter, this would be wonderful. But Chairs are not built for for people my size. Just no chair exists for me. But 
I've learned to slouch, so I'm I'm living in anyway. All right, are we uh, ready to launch into donations and then uh, the real meat of the episode? Sounds good. All right. Uh, thank you once again to Matt Hackbert and Henry Korkutz for your continued support of the podcast. It is very much appreciated. All right. Now let's get into the the nitty gritty, the mental game. And if we're gonna like talk about the mental game of magic, we should probably start by talking about magic itself. Yeah, so I want to preface mental game with we are not going to be talking about Jedi mind tricks. That's not like the mental game we're talking about. Uh, we're going to be talking about primarily how to deal with disappointment. Uh, that That's the aspect of mental game we've focused on, uh, like mental resilience. Uh, so uh, if you're here to for Jedi mind tricks, uh, go read a Patrick Chapin article from 2006 or something, because that's not it. But uh Dealing with disappointment mostly is what we're going to be talking about. All right. So magic is a game with variance, right? And and that, that's a feature, not a bug. That's something we enjoy about the game. You shuffle it up. You draw different hands every time. You get paired against all sorts of different players. Uh, you're going to be paired against different types of deck, different people of different skill levels and backgrounds. You're going to encounter Mana Screw, Mana Flood, perfect top decks of your own, and your opponents having, you know, the Bonfire of the Damned off the top of the deck. And a lot of that adds excitement and fun and variation to the game, and that's kept Magic alive for what feels like eons at this point, uh, in comparison to a lot of other trading card games. Yeah, it's older than a lot of the player base at this point. So... If you play another game like, say, chess or Go, the better player probably wins the vast majority of the time. It's a game of perfect information. Everything's known. Everything's there and can be processed easily. Well, maybe not easily, but can be processed. You can sit down and puzzle your way through it. But you don't really have a chance to beat someone who's significantly better than you, uh, you know? I, I can't go and get paired against, you know, X random chess personality and have any hopes of even taking a game off them ever. Whereas I can sit down against any pro in the world and go, yeah, I'm going to beat them some portion of the time when it comes to magic. Right. Uh, in, in my uh, career, I have defeated uh, Reed Duke, um, J Luis Scott Vargas, uh, John Finkel, uh, ben Stark. Um, three of those were at Pro Tours. And guess what? I'm not a Hall of Famer. And they all are. And I don't think for a second I'm better at Magic than them. But uh, with uh, the variance that uh, drawing cards every turn provides, uh, Mana Screw, Mana Flood, uh, matchup variance, like I just chose a deck that lines up well against theirs that day, you can win. Uh, just any person can beat anyone. Uh, like, kid who learned to play magic this morning and who is in their first draft if Luis scott vargas gets stuck on two lands he's gonna lose uh, <laughs> it's, i it's i did not mean to directly tie this to the pro tour but uh pro tour champion andrew allenbogen um he is a pro tour champion because Luis scott vargas mauled to four and didn't play the game 
like uh, they were in a mirror match where the person on the play is heavily favored. Luis was on the play for game five. He mulligan to four. This was pre-London mulligan. They actually invented the London mulligan because of this situation, because the Pro Tour finals came down to a mull to four non-game. That's why they invented the London mulligan. But like Andrew Ehlenbogen, uh, I respect him. I've teamed with him for Pro Tour testing and stuff like a uh, cool dude, but he's not as good as Luis Scott Vargas. And but he is a Pro Tour champion uh, from that event. And Luis is not so. These things happen in magic, and that that is just not the same in a game like chess, where the player who plays better, who will usually be the better player, uh, I, in case it's not clear what I mean by that, the better player will not always win if they're just constantly punting, just making bad decisions, not really paying attention. Maybe they didn't sleep last night, but they may be a better player overall. But the player who plays that game better will win in chess every time. So... That's not the case in Magic. Um, in chess, uh, the ELO ranking is, that's where it came from. It was used for Magic for a number of years, uh, famously problematically, because as we're discussing, they're different games. But like a chess player can walk into a chess tournament, scan the room, be like, I'm, I have a 1950 rating. The next highest person in here is 1825. I've won this tournament if I can just keep my head on straight. And that's a reasonable shot to call. You can't do that in Magic. Um, a a 50, 100-person event, like mid-size PTQ, uh, it doesn't matter who you are. You can't walk in and know you're going to win. Uh, it's, it, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Uh, if you follow other competitive games, like, say, Super Smash Brothers or some other fighting game, that, that same skill gap sort of thing is, is there as well. You know, if you watch, say, Super Smash Brothers Melee you know, like Armada, Leffen, Mango. Those are the sorts of people who make top eight. And when somebody new breaks into a top eight, it's a huge deal because they they broke through and kind of like, you know, really, really proved themselves by by doing so. So I think one of the differences between Magic and these other games is, like we've discussed, there's variance. But with Magic, we tend to look at the law of averages a lot more than other games, at least in my experience. So while really good players have a terrific win rate, they don't always win. That said, there's a reason there's names like Reed Duke out there. They win you know, slightly more than the rest of us. And that's why you see like cream of the crop type players rise. Uh, like you'll see Luis Scott Vargas some more top eights than you'll ever see a Brian cook. Um, Cause he's just much better than I am. And eventually that does rise up, but the variance isn't always there. Like sometimes those players just play better and they get rewarded and like the luck breaks in their favor, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, magic is much more like poker in this way than chess uh like poker you can do your homework you can know the numbers you can have a strong mental game a strong bluff game a strong read game and you will over time make more money than someone who doesn't do those things but any given session uh, like you could sit down at the casino be out 500 dollars, and be on your way home uh over the course of four hours and you might still be up <laughs> i don't know what pokers make players make like 30 40 grand for for the year uh, but like that's any given session, uh, like you can't be a 
poker pro or like live a poker lifestyle if you can't afford to take a loss on any given day because there is are no guarantees and magic is the same thing yeah i see a lot of magic players especially um you know kind of aspiring grinders set goals like i want to top 16 this gp like dude there's there's 1500 people here even if you run hot and have a great weekend that might mean a top 64 appearance like more on this later but you have to make sure you're setting realistic goals you know the luck is going to go some ways for you one weekend and another way for another you might have you know a a great weekend one time but you can't always expect to be doing well in a tournament even if you are a great player so to rewind a little bit to what brian was saying about how you need that bankroll in case you have a bad weekend i do think part of the uh, mental tax or I don't want to say mental weakness because that's not the proper term but the depression that comes with grinding is uh, like a couple of these large companies sold the dream of being famous traveling in the world traveling the states to see all these different cities but ultimately they're not winning a lot of money and they end up going broke traveling weekend to weekend and it's in a very expensive hobby that and it is ultimately a hobby for many people, and it's a luxury hobby considering how expensive magic is, and eventually that pool runs dry. And you see and hear a lot of stories about people that have fallen off or gone broke playing magic. And, and let's just pause for a second to talk about the word grind, because we're going to say it a lot. We've said it a lot already. Just really think of what that word means, and it's to like slowly deteriorate over time like that's what grind means and people who play lots and lots of magic are called grinders and that's because they're getting worn down over time like you have to show up you have to keep cranking that millstone uh to make the wheat because like uh that it just <laughs> you can't show up when you need a quick pile of cash win and then peace out for another four months because it you it just doesn't work you gotta grind i don't know how many iqs i've played lifetime it's a lot it's so many iqs <laughs> yeah so i i uh i i'm gonna tell a Stuart wright story which which i did not plan which is weird because i have a planned Stuart wright story in a couple bullet points down uh if you're not familiar with Stuart wright he he's a uh, British magic pro, constructed genius. Uh, was never great at limited, but could like just solve the math equation on any constructed format. Really great individual. And after I cashed my first Grand Prix, I was just like riding high of like there is money in my pocket. I have pro points now. Like I I I like made a Facebook post where I was like, Magic Grinders, how do you do it? I want this. And Stu replied, it's right there in the name. <laughs> like, you gotta grind. Is <clears throat> and, and, like, when he said that, I was like, I kind of instantly realized I don't actually want this. I just like winning. <laughs> so, uh, that, that was just, like, brilliant insight, like, very quickly. Uh, like, a lot of, so, a lot of Magic players, like, this conversation surfaces on Twitter, like, two or three times a year, where it's like, how can we fix magic? Like, how can we like make it so 
mana screw and mana flood don't decide so many games uh like that's the worst part of magic how do we get rid of it and it's usually being pitched by some like mid-level person maybe they have like a couple star city top eights or or not like or they they just think they're good uh but maybe they're not like they that like moving the game to a zero variance system even if you think it would favor you it would be so bad for the game uh because you'd run out of opponents quickly like if you truly are favored in a zero variance system you'd quickly run out of people who want to play against you and if you're wrong and you're not as good as you think you are you will quickly not want to play anymore uh and this brings me to uh, other games that have tried to solve Magic's variance system. Solve is in quotes, by the way, because uh, our our thesis here is that it's not broken. It's a feature. So the World of Warcraft TCG and Versus system are two games that I'm aware of that I've played a little bit over the years uh, where you develop your mana by playing any card in your hand face down. And it's just like a mana rock for the rest of the game. So you can never get screwed. You can never get flooded. Like any card in your hand, you just play it face down. It's a land now. And then when you have enough lands, you just stop playing them. And then all your cards are, are cards again. So uh, Versus System and WoW both worked the same way. And those games, uh, they had exciting bursts at first. They had like pro circuits. They had prize money. Lots of people were playing them. And then they were quickly solved by the best players. And... This brings me to my planned Stuart Wright story. Uh, Stuart was one of the best WoW players on the planet. And because it was a low-variance constructed system, which heavily favored his skill set. And when I was living in England, I got to know him a little bit. And then I, I moved back to the States. And WoW Worlds was being held uh, in Florida uh, in the United States that year. And uh, Stuart was just sort of like, uh Maybe I'll fly out there and win it. I don't know. And it, like, he wasn't even like, he wasn't really like, I don't know if you needed to qualify or how it really worked, but he wasn't planning on going. And then like last minute, he was just like, yeah, I'll throw a deck together and go because it's likely I'm going to win. And then he did. <laughs> like he, he just like, uh, like it, it's more of an ATM than a slot machine sort of system. If you show up and know you're going to win. And like, if he didn't need the money, maybe he wouldn't have gone. But like it, it, like that sort of game where the best person can just show up and always win if they want to is not a good game. And where is the WoW TCG now? Where is Versus System now? They're dead because people just didn't need a chess variant in their lives. So to piggyback on this a little bit and relate it back to Magic, uh, I know several people that consider themselves to be Delver of Secrets experts that where they love playing Delver, they'll grind playing Delver, etc. But once Delver is the best deck in the format, they don't like that because they're not comfortable winning the mirror match. And ultimately, those games become like chess. And if you're not as good or if you're not as smart, you're not going to beat the better Delver player, the better Magic player. And unfortunately, that happens a lot with Legacy these days, where Delver is just the best thing to be doing. But there is a it feels bad knowing that like you might be a deck specialist, but you're not the person better at winning the mirror match or winning the chess game. Yeah, that is a strong point. Uh, I, I definitely remember like the, uh, the 2010, 2011 era, like the old small ball rug delver with like stifle and nimble mongoose uh, just were stock 
Uh, and that that matchup did basically feel like chess. It was chess plus submerge. Like submerge was like having a bonus queen suddenly on the chessboard, but otherwise it was like almost everything was face up. Like oh, I'll just play around stifle. I'll play around days. Here's my goose. I'm gonna get to threshold before you. Like etc. And so I can be attacking. Like that. Uh, that. And there was a lot to like about that, but there was a lot also a lot that sucked about that. Like that when you're like sitting at home and it's like, well, Delver's obviously the best deck. I could just sideboard four submerges and uh, get my small edge that's actually going to be a big edge but uh, if you if you're willing to just throw away sideboard slots on every other deck to win a mirror match like we've talked about this on on this podcast before chess is basically a high skill mirror match or like you have the same deck as your opponent information's face up and you're just going to make whoever makes the best decisions is going to win and as magic skews in that direction that's usually when we end up with bans so here's here's a story that I don't think I've told before. Um, it's probably like maybe round seven or eight of a Star City Open. Um, and I'm paired against Michael Derkso, uh, another Death and Taxes specialist. And I don't remember exactly how it went um, or what the stakes were. But I know I, I, I won the game in three and I shook his head and I said, good game. You played better, but I won today. And he just looked at me, nodded and said, Yep, I'll look forward to next time. Yep. Yeah, uh, like, uh, we're going to get dig into this more later, but, like, the better player, even the player who played better, doesn't always win a game of Magic. And that's that comes with the territory. Um, so, some other game, like, one other game that I play a lot of is Hearthstone. And Hearthstone has that perfect curve mana system where, like, starting turn one, you get one mana crystal. Turn two, you get a second one. Turn three, you get a third, up to ten. And then past turn ten, both players have ten mana to work with every turn. And their resource development system is smooth, but they have extremely over variants. Like, cards will literally be like, when this comes into play, uh, a possibility of a random subset of things will happen. And you just have to deck build or manage the board in a way to maximize your random outcomes. And that's just an accepted part of the game. And if they got rid of that, if all of the creatures were just vanilla and everyone was just, uh, everything was heads up, nothing, no surprises, uh, then that game would die too. But Hearthstone is incredibly successful because they have just the right touch of variance built in. But then you could look at a game like Artifact that died very quickly a lot of people worked really hard on that including richard garfield uh it was heavily applauded by uh game critics but regular gamers hated it because it was a high skill game with tremendous amounts of overt variance it somehow got the worst of both chess <laughs> and hearthstone and met in the middle and uh I, I think there was a lot of beauty to that game, but a lot of just like extremely obvious frustration that if you've played a lot of games, you can understand why they built that in and why it's actually good. But it doesn't matter how good the engine is if your random Joe Smo with a Steam account is not going to log in and play the game. All right. Um, why don't we transition to our next section? Your win percent and you. Um, and they're the one and the same, right? 
<laughs> like uh, you are your win percentage? Not exactly. We're we're going for kind of the opposite. Yeah, that's literally. And the I think this is oh. something that a lot of Magic players need to hear, or maybe need to hear more often. Your worth as a human being or Magic player is not directly tied to your win percentage. Uh, and I, I would further that uh, from directly to in any way is not in any way tied to your win percentage. Yeah, I'm good with that. But and how will I get follows on Twitter if I if I don't have a high win rate and tell all my friends about it? Fuck, man, just post like well, dog pictures or something. That'll that'll take off faster than magic stuff anyway. Yeah, more people like dogs on the earth than like legacy. But the real Twitter hack, uh, which <laughs> we're we might as well talk about um if you scroll through social media even if it's magic twitter remember that social media is where people broadcast the parts of themselves that they want everyone to think is really them so if you scroll through your twitter feed and you see nothing but like five owed with this top aided the sunday challenge five owed with this one i queued for the pro tour like remember that for every one of those pictures every one of those tweets there was like 12 leagues that didn't go that well. That there's there's a bunch of two threes, there's some one fours, there's some O2 exits from challenges. Like not everyone is winning all the time. Just if you follow a thousand people, some of them are going to be winning all the time. So scrolling through your feed and constantly seeing winners, you you sh you don't need to feel bad about that. Uh like everyone fails a lot. And I've actually had interactions with some of my followers before where I'll I'll, I'll post like an 05 league and I'll be like, this one went well. And people will be like, genuinely, thank you for posting this because it seems like you're always winning. And it's like, oh no, I, I win almost exactly as much as I lose. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I think most people are in that same sort of boat. I forget who it was. There was some legacy player today who like posted a 5-0 with, I think it was like a Maverick version or something like that. And they were like, yeah, it took 120 matches, but I finally got my trophy with this. Oh, it was Dan Thank Healy. you. Yes, I knew it was somebody really good. Yep. Yep. I saw that tweet. Yeah, he was very honest about how long it took to get there. But like, here's the 5-0 at the top of the mountain of work that I put in. Like, that that's a real honest tweet. There's also this expectation that you should always be winning in Magic. And I was talking about this this week because uh, someone had tried a deck and... After a few leagues, they said, you know, I'm not getting results. That deck isn't an easy deck to play. Most decks aren't easy to play on your first try. Like, I played an Elves League this week that was embarrassing. Like, I played so poorly. and That deck is horrible. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And you shouldn't go into a league or match expecting to win when you're new to something. Like, learning how to play a deck takes a lot of time, and you should be pre be prepared to lose a bunch until you start to win. Until you're playing at a better level than your opponent with that deck, you should be expecting to lose. Uh, and even when you do get to that level, expect to lose some more, because Magic is a variance game. Yep. So, I, I'm going to take the next big chunk. I have two points that dovetail into each other. Uh, the first one is that... Uh, Run bads hit really hard for the legacy community in particular, especially if you only play paper. So if we look at like an annual schedule, assume non-COVID times, obviously, but we might get two Grand Prix in the world. 
Star City Con, SCG Con, usually has some sort of legacy main event. There's two of those a year. And then there's Eternal Weekend. So that's like five major legacy events a year. Um, uh, Maybe you can push it to like seven if you're willing to literally travel the world to to play Paper Legacy. And maybe you can only get to two of them. Like maybe you don't have infinite time off from work or infinite money to fly across the world. Like maybe you only play two or three events a year. And if you don't spike one of those two chances, you might feel bad all year until you get another one. Like those feelings of like, I'm not good enough. I didn't perform all of this. And you don't get the opportunity to average it out over many tournaments. Like compared to standard, like the SCG grinders, there's a star city event, like 40 weeks of the year. you'll you'll just refire the next one the next day there's a classic like you scrub out of the main event you top eight the classic you feel a little better and like but there's a lot of magic to be played unless you are one of the people and i'm sure many of our listeners are these people where like you own legacy that's all you want to play you only play paper you don't have magic online and you only really get a handful of chances a year to play so there's very different psychological stakes to like expecting results when you only have that small sample size to work with i will say this as someone who does travel quite a bit for magic you have to find the bright spot in those weekends and most of the time for me it's not playing magic it's seeing friends i haven't seen in a long time grabbing a drink after the event uh just chatting about music with someone at the event that has similar taste as you those sort of things or maybe it's finding a sweet foil uh but Enjoy something about that weekend, even if it isn't the gameplay. Yeah, just like my uh, poker uh, analogy, where like uh, you can't be a poker grinder if you can't afford to have a losing session. Uh, like if you are like uh, skipping lunch throughout the week to afford a ho- an eight way hotel split to play in this like Star City Open, stay home. Magic's not going to be a good time for you. Uh, like it, if it. If it and we've all known people like this. Uh, I I've been actually very close to a number of them, and some of our friendships became super toxic because uh, they were just in a constant state of owing people money. Of like, yeah, I'll get you for that hotel room uh, this week, but I know you already owe four other people for hotel rooms over the past six months. Like, why should I believe that? And then it comes down to like, events coming up. You still owe me money from the last one, like but I need to win money to pay you back. And they get into this sort of like junkie cycle where you can't really trust them. And they're, and yeah, it's just bad. And uh, like, if you can't afford to not win the tournament, you should not go to that tournament. Uh, Like this also obviously from the privileged position of being an adult with a job uh, and like my magic experience got better when I started treating magic tournaments as a vacation where I play magic that sometimes may pay for itself. And, and usually it doesn't uh, like just treat it as like the, the $300 expense for like the gas, the hotel and entry. And then uh, just assume that money's gone when you plan the trip. And sometimes you're pleasantly surprised. Uh, like I, if, if you look at my magic career, I've been playing since 1997, but the the deck lists with my name on them that are have been published start showing up in like 2017 i think uh maybe 2016 uh i i, w- I was 
in the game for 19 years before I put up results. And a big part of that was I grew up, got a job, and the pressure was off to perform, thus allowing me to perform. So right after college, I was, you know, 21, 22 years old. I was working a job that paid 30 grand a year out of college. Like I had my bachelor's degree. That's what I was doing. There was a point in my life I was reading, you know, Matt Costa articles in SCG. I was reading Jerry Thompson. And I thought these guys were like the greatest people on earth. They were living the dream. They were playing magic for a living. They seemed to be doing really well. And I was going to events and they were scrubbing out. And they were just like, yeah, whatever. I'll get the next one. Like that sort of thing. And it dawned on me that if they weren't uh, doing well all the time, there's no chance that I was going to make it playing magic. Because at that time in my life, I was like, you know, maybe this graphic design thing won't work out for me and I could just play pro magic because I'm only making 30 grand a year anyway. I am so lucky that I wasn't good enough. Um, because like with, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into it, but like magic as a career path would have been a terrible idea. Um, not only because like I'm not good enough, but also like there is no future in that uh, as of right now. Yeah, uh, I had a Twitter interaction with uh, Chris Pakula, the meddling mage, uh, a few probably years ago at this point. But I, I just like fired off a tweet where I was like, uh, I, I'm like 30 years old at this point. And it's like it's really cool that like with uh, Twitch and the Star City Circuit and the team mentality and everything that these like college kids can really make a run at content production and magic production and magic playing as a at least temporary career opportunity. And Chris Pakula replied, I am both insanely jealous of that and glad the opportunity didn't exist for me. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of friends. Um, if, if I can call them that maybe acquaintances is better people I know through magic and I watch them, you know, start talking about like, yeah, I'm going to stream. And I don't know whether or not I should tell them what's coming. Because for a lot of people, like you say, I'm going to stream. And then the first 20 times you stream, you stream to like zero or two viewers or something like that. There's a there's an uphill slog to be had there if your name isn't already known. Like when I started content production, like if you were in the legacy community, like you probably already knew who I was. Like I had tournament results. I had been posting on forums for years. And like by the time I started doing streaming and YouTube stuff, like I'd been running Thraben University for two or three years already. There was a time period where I streamed four times a month and I only did it for one month, but I never got a single Twitch payout. And I was like, this is not worth my time. Like I am working four nights a week and I am not getting paid. Like it actually takes quite a bit of success in order to even get paid. So keep that in mind as well, because a lot of people try to justify it. It's like, oh, it's like a night job. It's not. No, it's like a really stressful night hobby. Uh, when I was getting into streaming, I was consuming all the content of like how to build a successful stream and stuff. And one piece of advice that I wish I had taken uh, to heart more was uh, one of the websites was like, it would probably be easier to become the world champion of whatever game you want to stream and then use that fame to start your stream than to grind up from zero as just a yep, person. Yep, 100% true. And, and like, yeah, and just the idea of like, 
literally becoming the magic world champion and then using that to parlay into a stream successful stream and i think that actually might have been easier well we have a direct comparison uh paulo vitor now has a youtube channel with thirty thousand subs uh he just decided to do it paulo vitor amazing magic player brilliant mind he did that very easily compared to the uh i I don't want to discredit any of the work he's doing because that's not fair but i spent so much time here i am grinding and i have three thousand like i'm sure it wasn't as difficult for him to get there as it is for me like just being the world champion and a terrific person and player uh elevated him very quickly yeah i mean they the easy argument for that is that he did put in the work he did grind he just took a different path and he's just like you know dunking on youtube as an afterthought now that he's there but like uh, he he definitely had a harder path especially uh being based out of brazil like becoming the best player i i think paulo is my goat if i had to make an actual tier list like he is my actual greatest of all time same agreement but i was and... just talking about your world champion analogy like that is a magic yeah, example. yeah yep uh i i remember uh like I, I subbed instantly. Like I, I'm one of the thirty thousand. Like the day he posted it, and like his intro, it's like it like sticks with me. It's like uh, Mangucci's legacy video. Uh, Paulo is like, "Welcome to my new YouTube." <laughs> and he says that like he said that as the intro to like the first ten or twelve videos before he realized it's not new anymore. Like, "Welcome to my new YouTube." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Paulo's great. Uh, he he uh his girlfriend studied in pittsburgh briefly so he was in town visiting her during a pre-release and he just like randomly tweeted like where can i pre-release in pittsburgh and my friend chris stagno was like i know all the places i could pick you up so uh we ended up and i was also carpooling with chris so like we ended up carpooling with paulo to our local pre-release we went to eaton park before the pre-release and uh there, there was it was like the Eaton Park. If you're not familiar, is a is a pretty medium to terrible like diner chain based in Pittsburgh, and they have a breakfast buffet that closes at 10 a.m. And we got there at like 9:55, and we were all just like, "Yeah, we're gonna have the buffet." And the uh, the server was like, uh, "It it closes in five minutes," and like Paulo and I at the exact same moment were both like, "That's fine." <laughs> Like we can do some damage in five minutes and and we did spend the next five minutes like the four of us the four out of the like eight of us who who ended up getting the buffet we just piled like six or seven plates each and but like yeah uh paulo is super cool and the top eight of that pre-release by the way uh paulo vitor Domodorosa, steve rubin also a platinum pro at the time and then i i think there were like two other insane names uh who are either pittsburgh local or visiting at the time like insane pre-release but since we're talking about him so much uh let's talk about win rates with some numbers like people like data magic players like data and numbers let's get into some so paulo since we were talking about him uh, all of these stats courtesy of the elo project uh paulo's lifetime win rate uh at least in uh, professional events uh, i don't know what his fnm life was as a child but in professional events 63.9 percent, and that's the greatest player of all time in my mind some other candidates for greatest player of all time john finkel 63.1 percent, kai buddha 59.2 percent, louis scott vargas 62.4 percent. 
the current number one ranked player in the planet, Austin Bercevich, 66.5, and the highest cumulative pro-level win rate of all time, Stefan Schutz, 67.5%. That's the highest ranked person of all time, the best players of all time. I think Finkel, Kai, Paulo, and Luis are in everyone's top five. I don't know who number five is, and the order may vary, but I think those four are locks for top five goats. And... Uh, they're between 59 and 64% win rate. So let's circle back to our paper legacy player who plays two or three events a year. If you are maintaining that world-class Hall of Fame win rate of 60%, you would need to play in four or five events on average to make one top eight. Thank you to Jarvis U for the computation and determining reasonable assumptions for that number. If you want to nerd out and do math and get lost in the weeds with Jarvis, he has invited all of our listeners to message him, and he'd be happy to do that with you. Jarvis is the best. So, yeah, Jarvis really is the best. Uh, so, all right, so two, three events a year. A pro-level Hall of Fame career player would need four or five events on average to make a top eight. So, uh, what chance do you have? Uh, just be honest with yourself. Uh, nobody on this podcast is carrying a 60% win rate lifetime. I guarantee it. Uh, and honestly, if I'm 50-50 over the course of a year, that's good. Like, they'll line up in a way over enough events that I'll top eight a lot of them. And I will not top eight even more of them. But uh, if you're trying to tie your self-worth to two or three events a year, it's a mistake, even if you are Paulo Vitrodamo de Rosa. Yeah, and these I think are... there's a... Sorry, go ahead, Phil. And these are lifetime stats. These aren't, well, these are my stats since I really started keeping track. You know, if I think back to my first year of playing competitive magic, I got my ass handed to me all over the place. Like, I don't know what my win percentage was, but I don't think it was 50. Yep. <laughs> nope, definitely not. Um, so to compare these stats, these, uh, uh, so uh, highest Cumulative win rate of all time, 67.5%. Chess Grandmaster Gary Kasparov, uh, he... So th this is not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison because chess has stalemates and draws, which are a significant part of outcomes of games. But Gary Kasparov lost 7.7% .7 of his games for a 92.3% not-lose rate. I think his actual win rate was like 55, and then like the, the remaining... Uh, difference it, are draws but he only lost 7.7 percent of sanctioned games uh compare that to uh our boy stefan shoots he lost uh 32.5 percent of sanctioned games and that that's the difference between chess and magic uh, an all-time great uh, in chess and magic you'd be shocked at the number of people that i talked to where I ask them what they think their win rates are because so many people in Magic don't track, and I only track for Legacy, but I'll ask people what they think their win rates are. The default answer, I feel like, is 70%. Like, so many people think that they win 70% of their matches, uh, and I'm just like, you don't win 75 No, 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 I definitely win 70%. People tend to remember the highs and not the lows, uh, and they lie to themselves about it, and uh, I quoted this on Twitter recently, but I'm going to give them credit now. My good friend Tom Hepp has taken a break from the trophy grind, has been, been playing a lot of chess recently. And talking to Tom, he had this uh, really insightful quote that I don't think I'll forget for years. And it's that 
Magic is the perfect game because because it allows people to lie to themselves about their win percentage. And with chess, there's no lying. You are your win percentage. Uh, if you are an 82% win rate, that's terrific, but that's what you are. In Legacy, you can play... I'm not trying to make fun of any deck here, so I'll pick Nick Fit. Uh, if you play Nick Fit and you think that you win 70% of your matches, you can create this narrative in your head that like, oh, well, Magic has a little bit of variance. Like, I just drew badly here. This happened there. And before you know it, you think that you're better and your deck is better than it actually is. There's none of that with chess. And so you're allowed to keep on registering Nick Fit in all these competitive events, even though your percentage to win is actually pretty low. Yeah. Every time someone starts talking about a 70 plus percent win percentage, my thoughts are the sample size are small. One of the cards from your deck should be banned or your cherry picking data. Because I've I've had above a 70 percent win percentage for, you know, an extended like 100 plus series of matches like once or twice lifetime. And it's when I felt like my deck was the de facto best deck in the format. And I, as one of the best pilots of that deck, was crushing it. Yeah, I mean, I was 23 and 1 on camera with ninjas over the last uh, eight months or so. And I was only playing on camera. So there are no secret results you all don't know about. And like, that's an outrageous uh, north of 90% win rate. But also, it's a very small sample size, like 24 matches is not a lot of magic. I mean, when you have like four league trophies, you feel like a god. And I definitely did. And I definitely leaned into that for clickbait on my videos. But uh, my most recent ninja video, I think I two threed. And the list was the same. I was probably playing it better because I have those other leagues of of uh, practice under me. It just, you know, magic caught up with me. And and that's fine. Like at no point did I literally believe ninjas to be unbeatable or the best deck, but like that, that was a solid run, but that's so small. It just, it's irrelevant in the, the drop, the, it's a drop in the data pool. So uh, why don't we talk a little bit about the imposter syndrome? We talk about like all these like high win rates and you might be grinding tournaments you think that you're bound to like hit your win streak at some point, but you don't. Uh, or maybe you hit it once. Like, realistically, I've only top-aided one Grand Prix in my life. Um, like, sometimes you only get that luck streak that one time, uh, but that doesn't mean that you are you got lucky once and you suck. Uh, most people never top-aid a Grand Prix, so like, be thankful that you did once. And uh, imposter syndrome, everyone feels it a little bit. Sometimes it's just about managing your expectations. Um, people that create content experience that all the time. Are you as good as your idols? Um, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so, like, I'm I'm a great player. I'm a well-known legacy player. And I've participated in a lot of really high-level events. You know, I've got my trophies. And then, like... I go and play in something like the Legacy Premier League and I look at some of these other people with uh, that I'm competing with and it's like, man, am I, am I good enough to be here? And then I step back and I'm like, yeah, I I am. It's okay. But everybody has those those moments of doubt in one way or another where like you just think you don't belong in, in the cool kids club or whatever, however you want to think of it. 
Yeah. Uh, I We talked about this a couple episodes ago for for some reason. I don't remember how far into it we dug, but um, I, I was like ready to hang up the traveling magic lifestyle right before I won my invitational. Like that was going to be like my last hurrah. I'm not going to queue for an envy again. Like, let's just go have fun one more weekend. Then I'll focus on my, my friends and my job and stuff. Then I won the stupid thing. And then it was like, okay, uh, now I have two buys and free entry to all star city opens for the next six months. I can't just waste that like that. I, I need to like show up and, and put in, but I top aided zero of those free opens that I attended. Uh, it, in a lot of ways, it did feel like not only did I waste that opportunity, but I undermined my own win at the Envy because I couldn't replicate that result. I think I top aided a few classics along the way, but the classics are all the best players who couldn't top it, who couldn't day two the main event. So uh, that that's a kind of diluted pool. Uh, to compare yourself with uh, when you really want those those high level top eights and i was like all right maybe i was just faking it maybe i should focus on artifact so i like moved into artifact for content creation and then i just like accidentally won vintage champs i was like wait maybe there's something here and uh then then like things started happening more regularly to a point where i i didn't feel like it was fake oh also my vintage champs win uh if you don't remember this, uh, I was I won game three due to an opponent drawing an extra card by accident in round nine, which I thought was my win in in. And then I turned out to have bad enough breakers that I had to play round 10 as well. And I was literally dead on board about to extend my hand to handshake and concede when my opponent also said, oh, I have eight cards in hand and got a game loss. So like, even though I won the tournament, it was like, did I earn that? And so there's just like, there's always some like shadow of doubt on something. And then like, uh, I've top dated Eternal Weekend five times now. And I feel like I can relax and be like, okay, yeah, I, I think I'm I'm pretty reasonable and it's not fake. And it wasn't a fluke. Like, like uh, five, five, I think is the most of anyone. So <laughs> I'm allowed to sit on that and enjoy it. But it, it was a long grind. And then, there's always another tier. Like maybe if you're like, if you like win FNM three weeks in a row and then you owe to FNM and it's like, wait, were those all flukes? Uh, and then, or like I top eight eternal weekend five times, but then uh, I day two, two out of my five pro tour appearances. It's like, and I only cash one of them. It's like, well, I'm definitely not as good as those people. So I'm not good at all. Like you have to work your way out of that mindset as well so like there's always some sort of moving goalpost that you could try to kick for but you're better served understanding the success you've had than uh like wishing for all the success you haven't i'm going to share a, a personal thing so in 2010 i top eight at a grand prix and it's not meant to be a brag i, I promise but in round number 13 or 12 i faced a local to me and someone that I considered to be a really good friend at the time uh, goes, oh, I can't believe that you're going to make the pro tour. And coming from a lower middle class family, I didn't have a lot of money. Like, in fact, like I did the thing that Brian said that you shouldn't do, like go to an event when you really can't afford to. Uh, I was like a broke college kid at the time. Like I was making under $100 a week 
uh, and it, I was just like barely scraping by. And I go, I'm definitely not going to the pro tour. I can't afford a flight to um, Amsterdam. And they go, what? You're never going to top me for the, or you're never going to qualify for the pro tour again. You know. And uh, I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, if you weren't going to go, you should have conceded to insert my round 12 or 13 opponent here. And at the time I was like, why would I do that? Like I earned that win. And they're just like, yeah, but you wasted an opportunity. You're never getting back. I've had that voice in my head of this person saying that for over 10 years until 2020 when I spiked a legacy PTQ online. And in my head, I've never been good enough up until that point to get back to the pro tour. And like, that was a burden on me for a decade. So, um, and I, it's not healthy. It's really not. So like, also don't try, like speaking from personal experience here, don't let other people's expectations bother you. Cause it, it really did bother me for an entire decade. And like that PTQ, it, it took a monkey off my back. Yeah, and also, uh, that's a messed up thing to say to a person. Just for the record, uh, like the, you may not notice the like toxic energy around like concession culture or like do what's right or like whatever, but you don't know what anyone else's priorities are. Like 2010, Bryant Cook. I'm sure GP top eight prize money, just a grand in your pocket. It got me quite is, a long was, way. Yeah, like uh, it's a life changing amount of money for a kid. Uh, and like, okay, not going to the pro tour. You think anyone sadder about that than 2010 Bryant Cook? Like, you you think you random guy who's giving you shit about it is more upset about that missed opportunity than the person who's giving it up? Like, uh eat every dick by the way <laughs> like that guy so uh that like, just like think about what you're saying before you say it um I, i've definitely i was in a similar position like fresh out of college i was making like 20 grand a year and just like scraping for rent and i wasn't traveling to big events but like the friday night or the saturday uh legacy for a tropical island or whatever like that would you know pay my rent for the month or at least help me get there trops weren't eight hundred dollars at the time uh they were a lot cheaper but that was still a big chunk and uh like right around when the uh the trigger rule changed uh when you didn't have to help your opponent remember their triggers anymore uh my opponent like put in an end step batter skull they just dropped the artifact on the table didn't indicate the living weapon trigger or a germ in any way and then like started their turn, played their first main, went to combat, reached for a germ token, and put it on the batter skull, and I was like, you missed that. And basically the crowd went wild. Everyone in that game store thought I was scum and terrible, because it was both a new rule, the stakes were quote-unquote low. Like, it, it, it's like, it's FNM, like, why are you being a shark right now? And it's like, well, you don't know what $200 means to me right now. Like, I need this, and, and you fucked up like i was the same way and and i don't think i would make that play now but i'm in a position where i don't have to and like you don't know someone's life uh so uh and everyone dealing with all of these things we're talking about plus the things like as magic players we should know that everyone around us is dealing with these things and then there's all the stuff you don't know about which is a lot bigger i promise yeah so just curb your toxic energy before you judge sometimes you don't know like what seemingly you know meaningless thing you do is the thing that like sets someone off after they're 
their bad week, you know? I could I could go into some anecdotes here. Uh short version. I had someone absolutely lose their fucking shit one time at like an FNM level event where they put their terminus into hand and then tried to cast it for one mana and I no sir them. And they they lost their fucking shit. Like I think they left the store. And like, was that really about you know me following the rules of magic, or was that just like the buildup of a bad week? And it's like I'm here to relax and play magic, and you're rules lawyering me. Like, if you can be good to someone, and it doesn't cost you anything to do so, it's okay to do so. There was a local to me right around the time that Ravnica was in standard like you remember the first set of shocks had come out so it was after the last set of shocks had come out uh there's this older man uh I'll, I'll drop his name Dave Ruckishell and I will never forget Dave super nice guy he was like a coach of a high school football team and like lacrosse team did it for free he just liked coaching uh he was a retiree he played magic just to have fun he loved limited and he was just like someone that was really nice to have in the store. Super nice guy. Uh, he would show up to the store every Saturday just to play sealed deck. He loved sealed deck. Would give his deck away after. Like he did not care about the cards. He just wanted to show up, have fun. He got rules lawyered and goes, "Okay, I get it. I lose the game. Can we keep playing? I'd like to just see how this would have ended." And the person was like, "No, uh, that's not how this goes. I win. I'm gonna go like do whatever now." And Dave was like come on, just like, let's play. You can have the prize money. $20 doesn't mean anything to me. Let's just play. The person was like, no. And uh, Dave took his like duffel bag from sports or whatever, placed it on the table and goes, you clearly need these cards more than I do. Uh, this is a bigger hobby to you. Um, it's been nice playing with you all these years. I think I'm done. And just, I've never seen Dave ever again. Um, because like some people truly just love to play and don't really care about the winning aspect. Like Dave, in my mind, like it's crazy to me that he just like handed over a duffel bag and was like, Hey, you can have my binders. And it wasn't in a mean way. It was just, he was just like, this probably isn't for me then. Right. Yeah. And, and I, that's, that's tough. Like that, that is a tough situation to observe. Um, there's also the flip side of like someone who is just there to play fun, but uh, you signed up for a tournament and like, uh, no, I don't want to play casual. I want to go like uh, relax, uh, let my brain rest be before I have to go win the win the finals of this, you know, whatever it is, whether it's like your FNM draft or I'm about to play a win and in for a GP. Like, no, I don't want to finish this match. And like we all agreed to certain rules when we signed up for the tournament and, and it cuts both ways. And just like uh, I mean, respecting what people are about either way and, and like your man dave there like that that is a strong response that i i'm sure he believed was the correct one for him and uh i i'm sure whoever he was playing against believed like i i can use my time better than to play this casual game now that the tournament match is over and uh it, it's just about respecting the people around you one way or the other like maybe like uh I haven't eaten yet. I really need this time to like go grab dinner before the next round. Like, sorry, we can't finish our match. Might have been a better thing to say than no. This is how this works. Shut up. <laughs> like, I mean, like, uh, f find your middle ground. Uh, it is, I guess, all I'm saying there. All right. Uh, let's 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 move this thing forward. So, uh, 
the next thing we're going to talk about is focus on learning and results will come. Like if you focus on results, you're not going to learn. But if you're willing to learn, you will get results. And uh, like you want to play with your eyes open. Uh, examine every win and every loss with the same lens. Uh, like I won, so whatever scoreboard is just as useless as, oh, I just got unlucky. So uh, your wins, figure out why you won. Uh, figure out if you lost, figure out why you lost. Uh, like, um, I got unlucky. Compare that to, uh, I did these things well. I played around what I could. And then they just had it at the end. It was a good game. I didn't come out on top, but I think I played well. Uh, that that's a valuable takeaway rather than like, oh, they got so lucky. Or, uh, likewise, even if you won, uh, I missequenced that ponder on turn three that caused me not to have the colors I needed to double spell on turn six. I got away with it this time, but that could have been bad. I need to tighten up. Like, that's a lesson learned from a win. And if you watch my channel, I'm constantly saying like, oh, I, I, I didn't get punished. That was lucky. But that ponder definitely should have been in the other direction. And you should be thinking about every play, every win, every loss as an opportunity to get better yeah so something i've noticed a lot since quarantine has started because i've been doing more discord uh, discord calls people blame things on luck way more than i would have ever guessed like something will happen and the common response is just like unlucky and like i feel like sometimes it's in jest or like something along those lines but i think deep down a lot of it isn't like they do chalk up more things than they probably should. And this isn't one individual to lock. Uh, and that's just like not always the best way of looking at it. Cause you know, magic is a game of variance, but there's so much to be said, like Brian said about like, well, on turn two, you could have stacked your ponder a different way. Uh, those sort of things are sometimes like I'll do something and instantly I'll realize that I did it wrong. When I get punished, I, I often say I deserve that uh, because I could have played better. Like, there's always micro decisions you can make that will have huge impacts on the game. I play five leagues a week at minimum right now. I don't know if I can remember the last time I played a league and I was like, yeah, I don't think I could have done anything better there. That was just the best I could have played. Absolutely not. Like, I don't think that's possible. I don't think anybody on this earth or any supercomputer program to try, could play five matches, five best of three matches of Legacy perfectly. Like, they, like play, play the five matches, record them, submit them to a panel of experts, someone will find something, even if it's not, like, glaringly obvious. Just, it's there. It, it can't be done. Like, I, I think the only, like, perfectly played game of Magic is if you're on, like, Vintage Dredge, and you mold a one looking for your bazaar, don't find it, then just die. Like, you did what you could. Like, you probably made every decision perfectly. <laughs> like, if the binary is find bazaar, or you don't do anything, and it just didn't show up. Well played. You, you lost. <laughs> you lost hard, but you did what you could. Like, I don't think a perfect game of Magic where spells are exchanged is really even possible. So question for you, Brian. Can mistakes happen before you even play your match? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh so um deck building, uh so sideboard uh sideboard cards, like the actual deck building components, the sideboard map of what are you bringing in, 
uh, like that, the old surgical extraction in your fair matchups, like, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. I mean, Uro might change the math a little these days, but uh, like the old, like, Miracle's Mirror Surgical Extraction or Rug Delver Mirror Surgical Extraction, like, get that out of here. The, those are mistakes that are being made outside of the Playing game. Playing your pet deck um, instead of the best deck in the format. So I, I don't think it's fair. I don't want to call that a mistake. I don't think that is a reasonable thing to call a mistake. I think it is reasonable to call it a decision. And it is a decision where if you're... If your goal is to achieve that, you know, 62% Hall of Fame win rate, it's a decision that you can't afford to make. But if you accept the other intangible value of Magic the Gathering as like a creative outlet, as uh, just like a fun day with your friends, those sort of things, there are plenty of people who want to win the way they want to win. Even if they win less often, the wins will feel so much better because they did it their way. And, you know... I'm not willing to call that a mistake uh, unless it's like the pro tour. Like you should be trying to win if you're at the pro level, but uh, you do need to account for like, uh, no offense to my dude, Reaple cheap, but the, uh, the dark ritual Trinisphere chalice of the void mana base of curses. I hate Yeah, That's like among the worst magic experiences I've had where you're like, you're like ancient tomb chalice of the void. And then the next turn, you draw your Dark Ritual. Or you're like, uh, turn two Trinisphere, next turn, draw your Dark Ritual. Like, I I can't do that. And, uh, but Reaple Cheap's out there putting up 5 O's with Curses. Like, he's doing the thing. And good for him. I, I believe he uh, top-aided just... the challenge this weekend, by the way. <laughs> uh, that's not true. He no? started 5-0, lost the last two, and got like 14th. Ah, oh, savage. Rough. Yeah, like I, I all of my my love and respect for Reaple Cheap and the people like Reaple Cheap who have their thing and they like to do it and they can put up results with it. Uh it's just if like I am not willing to take that, you know, I don't know, like I, I'm just making up numbers that five percent chop, that ten percent chop off my possible win rate. Uh, by giving up like a brainstorm force of will like decision oriented sort of plan uh, like that that's just where i think i can maximize those numbers and you'd be hard pressed to find me in an important tournament without those cards in my deck yeah when i played elves this week uh i drew in consecutive order huff huff progenitus and i said why am i playing this deck where are my brainstorms i said that in the video um like it seems like a joke but like part of that's just true and i understand how good elves is don't get me wrong yeah yeah i mean uh i did the episode of deep analysis with uh phil and dukes and uh dukes talked about that in maverick where it's like you have your green sun zenith package that has is full of sweet bullets but sometimes you just draw them in the wrong matchup sometimes you just have like collector oof against a deck with zero artifacts and that card's in your hand make it work <laughs> and and like those those are percentages that you have decided to give up in the grand scheme of things to do it your way or play what you know and, and it's entirely possible that given your experience and the things that you have reps under uh, and like tournament testing getting the reps is also a uh, a mistake you can make before you even start the match uh 
like sleeving up the, like just going on goldfish grabbing a list sleeving it up two hours before fnm and just firing in on no reps like maybe you had a busy work week maybe you couldn't do any better that's fine but understand that you've given up something by living that lifestyle and uh like a lot of people if you're used to maverick if you have you know five thousand games of maverick under your belt you probably should not pick up brainstorm for the first time the morning of a grand prix even if like brainstorm is you know uh genuine genuinely accepted to be better or puts up a higher win rate on paper like you're gonna do better with maverick i think but... part of that is why we saw the patreon model uh explode two years ago and die down a little bit is these seg grinder kids had these cyborg plans written out for the people that worked five days a week and didn't have time to understand every matchup so for five dollars i could gain a cyborg guide from someone that put in the reps with a list that is likely well tuned um i don't i don't know if covid killed that or if just like that model ended up not being successful but i quit seeing it after a while um it's just something interesting to think about yeah i'm fairly certain that's covid related uh my Patreon membership spiked. Uh, I put out a like top three decks and their sideboard guides for a legacy, like right before a legacy PTQ early on in the COVID shutdown. And I got a bunch of like people who subbed that month and then immediately unsubbed after they got that content. So I think the model still exists. There's just not tournaments. But as a person who works five days a week and doesn't have time to grind out everything, I'm subscribed to Lotus Box. I was subscribed to Team Nova, like back when they were grinding every format every week. And uh, my GP win, that was a Lotus Box deck with a Lotus Box sideboard plan. Like once I, by the the secret for me was that I could shortcut the testing process by seeing what their they their theory was in matchups. Like, oh, you're boarding out two Mox Opals and bringing in two Metallic Rebukes. You think that. Uh, like you think this is game is going to go long. You don't want to die early. Like I could fill in those blanks and then uh, pivot with it as I went uh, rather than just take it as gospel and do exactly that every time. Uh, like I, I get a lot of value out of sideboard guides that way. Um, but sideboarding is incredibly important. It's incredibly hard and not knowing how to sideboard when you show up to an event is I will say that's a mistake. I'm willing to call that one what yeah. it is. So like on on the pet deck note that I made, like to clarify my point, I think that like intentionally forcing yourself to play one deck when you have other options available to you um, often put, puts people in a bad spot. Like I, I have a great range in Legacy and there's so many tournaments where I funneled myself into playing D&T because like I'm a D&T guy. You know, I have 10,000 hours in with this deck. Why shouldn't I play it when I just as easily could have just played the best deck in the format and probably have done better? So I'm not saying like it's always a mistake to register your pet deck or whatever. But I think there's times where like you can take a look at the mirror and go like, I shouldn't have done this this weekend. This was fucking stupid. <laughs> Hi, Phil. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Bryant also obviously knows how that goes. There are times when the Epic Storm is the the glorious solution to the meta and there are times when it's not so good and uh i i've told my my elves story like i i played elves exclusively for close to three years and through the entire top miracles era just refused to respect terminus at any point and lost a lot of games for it and the weekend that i decided to try something different i sleeved up 
Grixis Delver, Deathray Chem and Grixis Delver. I played in the uh, like Saturday night Star City Legacy warm-up and then won the Sunday Classic. Just those were my first two events with uh, in, in probably five, six years with Brainstorm and Legacy. And I was just like, what the hell have I been doing? Like, I, I genuinely believe I was one of the top five Elves players on the planet during my run with Elves. But it just didn't matter because Terminus was in you know, like 30% of the field or whatever. And it like you could work as hard as you want to be Terminus or you could just play Brainstorm, put it in your deck and just like beat them with red elemental blast like it just was so easy and i was like oh i could be winning tournaments instead of not doing that i prefer that mode so the title of this section is focus on learning results will come and it's like this piggybacks on the uh playing your pet deck thing you can play your pet deck and eventually you will shoot your shot uh certainly i've done it like i've played the same deck through terrible metagames um but as long as you're shooting, you will eventually sink something. And it doesn't matter if your Rebel Cheap with Curse is shooting 40% or if your Rug Delver is shooting 70. Both will eventually shoot a shot. Uh, it just depends on how many shots you take. And when Brian said that there's only five events a year for Legacy, if you're playing that 40% deck, you're going to have to, you know, hit a hard one. Where if you're playing Rug Delver, you're more probable to make it. That said, uh, to circle back to another thing Brian said, I went 10 this year in a challenge with Rug Delver. I don't give a shit about that event. Like, it is meaningless to me. Uh, it's fun to joke about, but, like, I have no emotional connection to that. Uh, spiking a PTQ with the Epic Storm, I'm not going to forget that. Like, that was super meaningful to me. So, you kind of have to take some things with a grain of salt because, uh, ultimately, at least for me, this is a hobby and not a job. And um, that sort of thing matters, too. Oh, yeah. Like, my my classic top eight with D&T means way more to me than, like, say, my Red Prison challenge win. Like, when I just won that event with Red Prison, I literally felt like I was just clocking in each round. Just, like, time card in, go, 10 minutes of gameplay, I won my match, clock out, do something for 40 minutes, repeat for the next six hours. So uh, the next bullet on here is about plateauing. And uh, the note says, I'm willing to bet that Brian wrote this, says the best thing you can do is work or play with people better than you. Ooh, so Phil wrote it apparently because Brian's shaking his head at me. Uh, another thing is I thought I was so good at magic in 2016. And then I started playing magic online. I sucked. And I was so confident that I was really good at magic. Uh I just exponentially got better. And I think now looking back, I was an idiot and I was egotistical and I've learned so many better ways of leveling up since then and strategies. You should, if you ever feel like you're plateauing, you're not trying um, or you're not making the effort to get past that plateau. Yeah. it Magic is not a one person game. Like if you want to be good you need a team. You need to be working with people. You need to be talking on people, playing games with people, having people review your videos of matches, like really critically digging in. Like if you look at a lot of the deck specialists, like they are writing a fucking web page. They are writing multiple articles. They have guest content. Like it, it is not a one person operation if, if you want to be at, at the top of your deck or the top of your format. 
Yep. And if you have, if you don't have a local play group, whether you just don't know people or uh, you live somewhere remote or something, you're listening to this podcast. So you have the internet. Uh, every deck has a discord community. Uh, there's Twitter, uh, Facebook groups, Reddit. Uh, you could join someone's Patreon if you can afford it and join that community. There are people who are happy to talk about magic 24 seven and they're on the internet. And I, I'm sure the uh, the the top of the rebuttal list for that is, but those people don't know any more than I do. And you're probably right. Like some amount of them uh, are going to be pretty bad. Like there's some hot takes that come through my YouTube comments, which we've talked about in the past. Um, like uh, you're going to get some stuff, but defending a position from a bad idea is also a useful exercise. Like rather than just like, we play for brainstorm, we play for ponder, then we start thinking about abundant harvest. It's like, okay, why? Like, harvest will always find you a spell. Why don't you just replace ponder with that? And like, the, in your, in your head, it's just like, no, idiot. <laughs> like, ponder, ponder is a staple. You can't do that. But then, like, really think about it. Like, what does ponder do that abundant harvest doesn't, and vice versa? And uh, like, start digging in i'm not going to talk about ponder versus abundant yeah harvest, let, let's save th that for a different a, episode yeah i mean this is a real conversation from earlier today in my patreon discord by the way if you're interested in these conversations i have a patreon you can join but the this is a real thing and like uh somebody uh they just asked like uh, i've seen people cutting ponder for abundant harvest and i'm like well what does the rest of the deck look like i'm sure it's not a combo deck because combo definitely wants bond uh, etc uh, but like def thinking about the pos your position and defining it out loud clarifies if it's solid or not like if you're just if you get stuck at like because it's better or because we don't do that then you don't know what you're doing anyway uh so uh, defend it rather than say that's bad explain specifically in what ways it is bad and remember that those people are also learning and you've joined this online community of people trying to get better and maybe you're the informed voice that they've been trying to hear from and maybe that's not what you were looking for but uh teachers learn a lot while they're teaching uh phil can i'm sure confirm that as a teacher for a job and myself also yeah i thought i thought i knew We're latin learning. i had a master's degree in latin and then i like sat down to teach for my first year and i went oh holy shit like i understand this internally but when i try to put it into words i am flubbing all over myself and the ability to like to teach is an entirely different skill and like when you can articulate what you're trying to talk about well that just shows a whole nother level of mastery. Right. Uh, like that's, I think the thing that my content offers that a lot of other stuff doesn't like, this is not meant to be a commercial for me, but you're all listening to my podcast. So buckle up. Uh, like my videos and the way that I explain every play, like no one's ever seen a ponder put on the stack before. I think that makes it super approachable. And I don't take for granted how to stack a ponder that my viewer understands that. I also don't necessarily take for granted that I'm going to come up with the best, so the best answer to that situation. So I want to talk through it for myself 
and I want to talk through it using language that someone who understands magic but doesn't necessarily play Legacy can get a taste of what I'm doing. Um, compare that to there are some brilliant magic minds who are just incapable of stringing together coherent thoughts for their audience, uh, like uh, Ben Stark, I, I think is a popular one. He's a streamer, MPL member, Hall of Famer, insane magic player, but the way he talks and communicates ideas is not particularly grokkable to anyone. So going back to your point about communities, uh, the first big level up I had playing magic, and I've talked we talk about this in the level up episode, but I used to spend 10 hours a day just reading MTG The Source. Articles exist from better players. Channel Fireball is free. You can go read what LSV has to say about a certain format. Um, legacy content like that exists too. Uh, Rich Kelly putting out terrific articles on Channel Fireball. Um, this content's out there as long as you want to read it, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a community. But even if you can't get into these discords, because Brian mentioned that they're paid services, Twitch is literally free most of the time. And if it's not, you give that person a follow and now you can type as long as you're presenting your questions in a reasonable way. A lot of Twitch streamers are happy to answer them. So if there's something you're stuck on, they're willing to help you or explain why they did something a certain way. As a teacher, I answer the same question so many times in a given day. And as a streamer, the same thing is true. Like, I don't know how many times I've answered basic things like, Oh, well, you have two Rashadden ports. Why didn't you just port them twice in the upkeep? Why did you wait till the draw step for the second one? Like, there's there's so many sorts of things that are, like, basic knowledge to me at this point, but I have to re-explain them for my audience. And people are going to be happy enough to do that if you ask. Right. So, do we want to start talking about dealing with losses? Uh, we've been... We've talked about a lot of the, the framing for... Why it is likely you're going to lose a lot, like the three of us here, we're not exempt from this. Uh, we're not talking down at you from a podium. We also lose a lot. Uh, how do you deal with it? So let's let's rehash some of the things we've said. Best players in the history of the game lose 35 to 40% of their matches. So let that sink in. Compare it to chess. Compare it to an athlete in their prime. So Serena Williams, Tiger Woods, LeBron James. Simone Biles, uh, losing four out of every 10 games, there is no LeBron James. That That is not LeBron James. That man doesn't exist if he loses four out of 10 games. Like, that's awful in all of those other contexts, but that's the Magic Hall of Fame in our context. So, and then be honest with yourself. Uh, there was an article called Your Fearless Magic Inventory, uh, written probably 15, 20 years ago at this point. But it was uh, about just really soul-searching, honest with yourself, what are my weaknesses? And, and and like, until you're honest, you can't find them. So be honest with yourself. Are you one of the best players in history? Is it reasonable for you to expect a 35 to 40% loss rate? Or is it going to be higher? So uh, we're not in that group. And you probably aren't either, unless you're Louis Scott Vargas, in which case, thank you for listening to our podcast. Please retweet it. <laughs> so, all right. Now, now let's all assume that none of us are Hall of Famers. Let's be honest again. Are you even above average? Like, do you have more years playing than the people around you, the other people in the tournament? Did you put in more time studying the game? Did you do the work to improve the game more than the people around you did? 
Did you do a metagame prediction and map your sideboard accordingly? Did you have a busy week and just pull that deck off Goldfish like we talked about? Did you play the same deck you always play regardless of the meta because that's what you have or that's what you like? And with all of these factors at play, are you going to bat 600? And the answer is no fucking way. I, I, you'd be lucky to to go, leave with an even record on with a with any number of these factors combined, like going four and four at, at a Star City Open, a reasonable expectation. And also remember that uh, magic, like points available in a magic tournament. Uh, so Jeff Hoogland once famously said that fun is zero sum in magic which is obviously bullshit, and he deserved to be lambooned for that, which he was. But points available in a Swiss tournament are zero-sum. Like If someone else gets three points, that's three points that are not available for their opponent anymore. And so if, you're, if your expectation is like four and four based on like your skill level, your experience, your mastery of the format, your card availability, etc., all those factors, maybe you spike a 6-2. But maybe you spike the two, the two six, like it. It all averages out over time. Uh, but reasonable expectation, it's not going to break sixty percent going into any given tournament. Yeah, and if you want to get better, start asking why. Like, why did I lose? Could I have done something differently? You know, did I make? mistakes in sideboarding to make mistakes in registering the deck you know ask yourselves those questions and if you answer yeah i could have done something differently yeah i could have played better like ding 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 congratulations you're you're growing you're improving and if you ask yourself a bunch of questions and you go like no i i think i did everything more or less right like also congrats like you played a great game of magic or a good day of of magic and you can you can rest on that for a little while but but stay hungry and be looking to improve keep asking yourselves those questions i've probably told this story before but i'm going to tell it again because it's something that's been ingrained in my head for a decade i mentioned earlier uh, about how when i graduated college i was a jerry thompson fanboy you know i'm still a little bit am i don't read jerry's content as much anymore um but i'm also playing lost standard uh so jerry had debuted shardless bug at a star city open the week before won the event easily the next week i'm in baltimore i'm watching jerry's round one jerry's playing the mirror match jerry like mulligans to five in game three and jerry's opponent is super far ahead has a jace jerry has one card in the hand with a termogoyf in play opponent hymns jerry and then unsummons termogoyf jerry just gets demolished the rest of the game and uh, Jerry comes up to talk to someone that I was talking to. And I'm like, oh, that was a tough round one. And Jerry just goes, what? And I'm like, oh, I saw the, you know, the whole Jace play. And he's like, oh, I play so much magic. Like, that just doesn't matter to me. And like, it, it was like mind blowing to me as someone who like didn't travel that often to play magic. That like that just didn't even phase Jerry is something that happened in his day. Uh, because Jerry knew he would have more opportunities to win and do well. Now I play so much magic that the results of any one round doesn't really bother me anymore. Like, if I take a really bad beat on a YouTube video, it's just like, okay, I'm going to play 14 more rounds of magic in the next week at minimum. Like, this this one doesn't matter. Like, 
stay hungry, try to win, but, you know, don't put yourself on tilt because a round went badly. Yeah, I had a comment in my in my YouTube comments this week. Uh, I think it was on my, my modern, like, Grixis, Sedgemore Witch deck. Uh, somebody commented, like, oh my god, uh, when you drew those four lands in a row, I was yelling at my computer. I don't know how you stayed so calm. And I literally don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> that's how little, that's how little that moment in that game meant to me because I play so much magic. And like, I'm sure at the time I was like, I, like, I wasn't going to, there wasn't a timestamp. I wasn't going to go try to find this moment, but like from context clues, I was like, oh, I must've flooded out a little and, and lost as a result. And like, yeah, sure. That happens. That's magic. The gathering, like, uh, literally had no memory of the specific spot that they were like freaking out about so uh and and there's been a a number of comments lately to that tune where it's like wow you stay so calm when you're just getting so unlucky and it's like eh, whatever uh but we're gonna talk about tilt in the the final section that's our our last thing so i'll save that for i mean why don't we just jump into the thick of it i I think we've said probably most of what we want to say here right so uh, i will say this there's a difference, at least to me, between a match of Match of the Gathering when playing online and then in paper. As Brian said, there's realistically five uh, events a year. I personally care a lot about those five events that I get to attend in non-COVID times, and I really want to win them all. But I also remember that I am a person, and so is my opponent. Um, be gracious when you lose. Uh, tilt is a thing, but it shouldn't be uh try to always be on your best behavior like that sort of thing uh must be nice you sound like a giant tool uh remember that yeah so we're gonna get into that and and like treating people right so uh like a a match played is only really a waste of time if you don't take anything away from it or if you create negativity out of it like win or lose uh like did you have fun? Are you out of your house for the day? Did you leave a good impression, make a new acquaintance, maybe make a new friend? All of these things are gained value from the time spent playing a match, even if you don't walk away with the match slip at the other end. And unless you take it upon yourself to be terrible <laughs> at, like to, towards your opponent, it's not a waste of time. So like that's totally on you at that point. So let's use that to move into tilt if you're not familiar with the term uh, tilt is when you start making decisions with your feelings instead of your brain uh, usually anger is the the fuel and then uh, you start making more mistakes and start treating people badly and just like uh, you you just become an insufferable ball of rage for a while Uh, so I I believe the term I I know it comes from poker. I believe it's based on uh, pinball machines because like if you tilt them, they shut down and like all the lights go off and the ball just goes into the hole and you can't do anything about it. So uh, you you become a broken pinball machine uh, when you do this. So one of the like codes that I live by is that uh, I, I truly believe that the only thing worse than getting upset over something you can't control is getting upset over something you can control. And then if you really take that to heart and believe in it, it's it's like circular on purpose. So like at the end of the day, that means there's not really much to be upset about ever. 
like there there's usually like some way to like shrug it off or make a change or or something uh so uh like did did you punt your match whoops lesson learned shake it off get back in there uh did your opponent play well and just have you beat gg's good luck next round good for them uh your your results from one round shouldn't carry into your mental state for the next round. Uh, you gotta find your way to reset yourself uh, before that next round. Like maybe you did take a bad beat, maybe they did draw a one outer, maybe you did say like good games, good luck on the outside, but on the inside you're fuming. Uh, you you gotta find a way to blow off that steam because it's not going to help you play better in the following round. I find that having a routine for the end of the round is important to help me mentally reset. So like every single round at the end of a round, I will go to the bathroom, I will refill my water, I will make sure I get a drink, walk around, refresh myself, and like try to make sure that I have like reset myself, whether, you know, I'm feeling, you know, anxiety or anger, frustration, excitement. I try to make sure that I am good before I sit down before like my opponent in the next round. I don't under like I truly and this isn't supposed to be an attack on anyone. I don't understand the people that the second their round ends, just they play more games of magic until the next round. Like it is so mentally taxing. And I think that you do end up carrying over a lot of the anxiety from the match you were playing into your round. Like I just want to be level headed and making good decisions by the time that next round starts. I think for some people, they feel like if they get out of the flow, they just kind of like stagnate. Like I, I know some people who they, they just have to be doing something all the time. Uh, they just get so bored if they're not. Yeah, everyone, like, like we said earlier, everyone has a perspective and like some people, they want to be in their flow in the zone and like maybe playing commander in between rounds of legacy is a way to stay in the flow. That's low pressure. Maybe they just want to play more legacy and just keep in the actual zone. Um, at at PT Phoenix, or yeah, Phoenix, the the pioneer PT, uh, I teamed with Matt Sperling and Paul Ritzel, and they were playing Gin or some like other card game between rounds, and I was six and one, like playing for seven and one, like uh, table one draft pod day two, like like that's where I was on day one of that, of that pro tour. And I just like floated over to them because they were my team and they were like, oh, do you want to play? And I was just like, no, <laughs> no, I don't. I want to just like float around with clouds in my eyes and think about nothing. So my brain is at like maximum capacity for the next round. But obviously, like they're strong players. They want to like keep their their gaming juices flowing and like that's cool for them. But uh, everyone's got a different process. And I think a a really good thing to help mitigate tilt is view the situation from your opponent's perspective. Like, oh, they ripped the bonfire of the dam and now I'm dead. Ah, versus for the other person, like that is their tournament moment. Like that is a huge, huge thing for them. And like, while it might be, you know, a disparaging moment for you, for them, it might be like, hey, this is a point where I, I really made it. You know, I, I played towards my outs and like now here it is. This is, you know, that, you know, one in 30 shot and and I just got it. Yeah, uh, like we we are 
thinking human beings. Uh, we are capable of empathy. It's one of the things that separates us from the animals. And your opponent is also a thinking, breathing human beings with hopes and aspirations. Uh, they spent the time choosing and building their deck the same way you did. They drove to the tournament, paid their entry fee uh, for their chance at the glory and the prizes the same way you did. And all of the despair that you felt when they flipped that bonfire was joy that they felt too. And I don't mean that to sound like they're a joy vampire and that fun is zero sum. But like, if you get out of that, oh, this lucky scum lord flipped the stupid thing uh, and get into like, oh, that was an awesome play. Like, I am happy for you, my fellow human being, for having that awesome moment. It sucks it happened to me, but we are playing a game and you are a person who is entitled to have a good time out here playing magic the same as you me. could also look at the unlucky bonfire from a constructive perspective of like, huh, my opponent's been making weird plays like trading one for one when they could have been doing this or that. Why would they be playing this way? What are they playing to? And try to figure out what their out is and try to play around it. I don't know if you'll get to bonfire the damned, but you can probably get to sweeper and then start trying to avoid sweepers. Um, that sort of mentality and just try to maximize your risk or lower your risk of losing the game um, to that. Like, it's not always just like, oh, upon Luxac bonfired me. Like, there's a chance you could have even beaten that bonfire. Right. Yeah, that, that circles back to uh, learning and uh it will lead into accountability, which is something else we're going to talk about. Uh, like like I started to say earlier, if you feel tilt coming on and uh, and you know you're not in a good place to interact with people, just get out of there. Like, uh, take a walk, uh, head out into the hall or outside, uh, depending on how the venue works. Um, like, you, you just, it is not your right to make someone else feel worse because you feel bad. Like, that just makes you shitty. And uh, whatever you got to do, like if you need to like go find like a quiet private bathroom and just scream and like, I don't know, punch the wall if, if you're a psycho, but please be careful with that. But like if if hurting your own hand punching a wall, it will keep you from uh, making other people unhappy with their experience, then go do that and then just come back when you're ready to interact with people respectfully uh, that that whole like must be nice or like oh I've, i played so much better than you and you still just beat me like nice bonfire of the damn like just just shut up sign the slip and go do that somewhere else stomp it out i tell a bad beat story to your friends if they're they have a mind to hear your it. friends don't want to hear and just either. like let's be honest so so this is something this is another lesson i've learned recently i personally don't want to hear your bad beat story if i ask someone did you win that's a yes or no question. And that's all I want to know. Like when I ask a friend, like, did you win? And they go, well, I'm immediately checked out. Sometimes I literally walk away. I just turn my back and walk away because I don't want to hear whatever's coming. But I I made a, a, a Twitter post, like it must have been over a year ago, like at a live event where I was like, I guess I was if you want to be uh, super uh, stingy with it, I was bad beat tweeting about someone telling me a bad beat story that I didn't want to hear. And a number of people replied with like, oh, I'm happy to hear bad beat stories because my friend needs to get that off their chest. And like, 
that's nice. <laughs> I I respect that. I still don't want to hear your bad beat story, but I respect if you and your friend group are established in a way that like your group therapy is telling bad beat stories to each other. That's a, but whatever the volume it is of them to blow off steam is usually pretty high depending on the size of your friend group. Right, the size of the friend group and also the uh, the quality of the friend group and the expectations and uh, like emotional maturity of the friend group as well. So like if they've listened to the last you know, hour and a half that we've been talking and they understand like you're going to win like probably 40 to 50% of your games if you're really really prepared, like that's the best you can hope for and your opponent is a living breathing person and like uh you understand and you analyze every play of the game realize understand like nope i really did nothing wrong and they just beat me they drew the one outer if at the end of all of that you still feel like you need to tell a bad beat story like i i don't know i like i feel like all of this is our steps to avoid being the person telling bad beat stories even if you get even if you take a bad beat it happens but that doesn't mean you have to tell a story So it does like to put a cap on that. Doesn't matter what happens with the cards in a game of magic. You don't have the right to be shitty to someone and diminish that person's enjoyment of their match win and their overall all the tournament experience. Now put the cards aside for a second. If they're behaving poorly during the match, you have to decide what that means to you. Uh, we've all lost to someone who is annoying or rude or whatever. Like uh, I lost a match to someone who sat down wiped their nose with their hand, reached into my dice on my side of the table, and was like, high roll. And like, uh, it's was, it was like, okay, I'm already put off by this. And then they were playing Burn. They announced all of the Eidolon triggers when I cast spells. I had to correct them to announce all of the Eidolon triggers on their spells. So I probably could have got them for cheating if I was in a better headspace, but I was super annoyed by this person. And uh, they were just... They were just annoying. They were like brutish standoffish. Uh, their their hygiene affected my comfort, and also they were probably cheating. And like at the end of the match, like or during the match, you got to decide how you're going to handle that. Like if you think it's over a line, and there are unsporting conduct lines in the Magic tournament rules uh, in the Infraction Procedure Guide. Judges are handle are trained to handle that sort of stuff. You can call a judge. If you are truly uncomfortable with the behavior of your opponent, uh, or you can decide to just, you know, suck it up, sign the slip and walk away and then process that however you need to away from the table. Uh, I promise you baiting some sort of interaction or causing some sort of altercation at the table is not going to be good for anyone. And now your shitty experience has become a shitty experience for all the tables around you as well. So just like the cards should never send you into some sort of dangerous spiral. But if like the person playing the cards is getting you there, call a judge or take a walk or something and just don't be terrible about it. So let me pose a question here. Can you remember the last time you really tilted? I don't want stories here, but just like, how long was it? Days, weeks, months, years at this point? When's the last time you really felt that tilt? Couldn't tell you. Well, you're both stronger than I. 
Um, well, it's been a year and a half at this point because of COVID. Like, I, I don't, I've not waited anything online the way I do in paper, but like, I, I've certainly felt tilt in tournaments. Um, this was before I ramped up content creation, found another avenue for uh, my magic outlet and other like forms of validation as well. Like, that's ultimately what we're talking about with a lot of this is validation, like uh, having the content and like all of that sort of stuff checks a lot of those boxes that I was seeking with my win rate previously. Uh, but but yes, I, it's probably like two years since I've like really t felt tilt. I will say it's probably been four or five since I've actually tilted off and been unpleasant to be around for for the people around me. Yeah, I, I would be measuring in years as well. Like I can think of a specific time at, at a tournament maybe about three years ago. Where, like, I said something at the end of a round that I really wish I didn't. I got a USC for it that I 100% deserved. <laughs> I think there's uh, also a pretty big difference between, like, feeling tilt and acting on tilt for what it's worth. It's been a long time since I've acted on it. Like, I'll internally bottle stuff. Uh, like, I've had opponents tell me that, like, they're shocked at, like, how little emotion I show. But on the inside, I'm boiling. Um but it's just how I handle my losses. Yeah, like these days, like something devastating can happen in a video and I'll go like, oh, that's kind of disappointing. Maybe maybe throw in a fuck for dramatic flourish or something. But like when the video starts up for the next round, it's just like, OK, I'm looking at my opening seven here and and you couldn't have tell that anything happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Recording videos for content. uh Nobody wants to watch a streamer tilt off. It's not fun. It, it will kill the stream. People will stop watching you. Uh, they're not going to come back. Uh, I had a video a couple weeks ago where I, I was like mock tilting. My opponent was tilting and I was like joke tilting back. And uh, it must have got lost in translation because somebody actually commented like, I tried watching this, but watching you tilt off uh, is not interesting to me. I was like, I didn't. Like I was, I was making fun of them tilting off, but I guess, so like the perception of like what people think is tilting off or what's acceptable behavior, uh, is, is also, uh, subjective and, uh, something that you might think is fine to say is actually not. And, uh, what, one of my, my bet, one of my best friends, I would probably say my best friend, uh, I know he doesn't listen to this, so it's safe to tell these stories, but like. He's a bit of a rager, and uh, he knows that. And there was a period of time where I was so sick of him raging that I would rage when we played, but he was not self-aware enough to realize that I was raging at him raging, and he thought that I was just a rager. <laughs> and it got into this, like, really annoying cycle where, like, at one point I had to say to him, like, like we we were, like, like veins popping, faces red, like escalated voices in a sanctioned magic tournament at one point. And I think I yelled at him, I shouldn't feel this bad playing my favorite game against my best friend. And I think that like opened some channels for us to have a more meaningful conversation. But like he would like tilt off one-on-one -on -one EDH, like nobody's around, just me and him at his kitchen table. And he's like, oh, of course you'd have the soul ring. Blah, 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 blah. So it's like, shut up. Who cares? You can scoop. We'll play another one. And, and like, just that sort of 
energy. Like you need to be self-aware. Like that's the, that's the, I guess my point here is you need to know that you're tilting and that you're out of line before you can do something about it. So I think that leads into our last section, right? About accountability. All right. So we've already kind of hit on this in a number of various places, um, but just kind of summing up, like you're you're a magic player if you're listening to this, right? Like, you you know, you're playing a game with with variants. You know, you're going to get paired against good matchups and bad matchups. You'll have mana flood. You'll have mana screw. You know, you will you will pull your one outer and then your opponents will get theirs. And you have to be able to process both sets of emotions, the good and and the bad. And you have to leave yourself in a good headspace consistently if you want to be successful. And in addition to just, like, keeping a level head, also, like, be accountable for your actions, right? Did you mess up? Did you make tactical or strategic errors that led to your losses? own those the words i messed up or i made a mistake are so valuable to your growth because it means that you're you're recognizing the things that you're doing wrong and then presumably you're going to try to fix them later or not do them again and they're liberating they are so freeing when you can say i messed up or i don't know when the weight of the world to know everything and be perfect is no longer on your shoulders, that is freeing. Like nobody can learn when they already think they're perfect or that they need to be like, it is okay to be wrong. It is okay to not know something. Uh, if my friend, uh, I, I know we're trying to wrap up anecdotes, but I have more and you will hear them. So, uh, I, I won a legacy tournament once with Rug Delver. This was back in like the 2011 era. I beat like Dead Guy Al in the top four on my way to the the finals. And I had a Delver that was just brick walled by some lingering souls for a while. And after the match, I won it. Like I feel like I made a lot of really tight plays in that match. And after the match, one of my opponent or one of my friends who was watching from behind me was like, you missed an attack with your Delver. And I was like, did I? And uh, he was like, yeah, there was a turn where you bolted a Lingering Soul token. If you attacked with Delver and they double block, you get to bolt, you get to kill both souls, and then Delver gets to crunch for a turn. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Like, I could have said, no, I didn't. I won, Or, I won, who cares? Or, I don't remember that. Or, like, you're, I didn't have bolt at the time. I could have said a lot of things other than, oh yeah, you're right. But that was the one that helped me learn something and and just was the correct play at that time and, and like being able to just hear that feedback and uh, i i definitely know people who outright reject the possibility that they were wrong uh like th there is a person who i play around uh somewhat re uh frequently who if you say like hey you missed a point of damage here he will say no i didn't just as a as a knee jerk just and if you explain uh, with like exactly how he missed that point he will say oh well it didn't matter anyway they didn't win the game at one life they won the game at six or or something like he'll find a reason the mental to gymnastics. It, and that person is not getting better yes that person is not getting better i can think of a uh, a specific time where i was at grand prix seattle 
and I was playing in day two and I lose uh, whatever game happened. My opponent, I had a known Kalgan's command that I was playing around the entire game. Uh, at the end of the game, an onlooker goes, you know, you could have won that if you just cast right of flame and ad nauseum. I had those two cards in hand and I go, my opponent has Kalgan's command and their response was like, whatever you think, you know, everything. And it's like, sometimes like the person playing is correct sometimes, but you should at least like listen to the possible feedback. Um, even if the person trying to give you advice isn't right. Yeah. So it is. Uh, on record magic tournament policy that if you see a uh, a rules violation not a not a tactical mistake but like a a mistake that leads to an illegal game state in a magic tournament at competitive rules enforcement level you can say stop the match i need to get a judge but you're not allowed to tell them what the mistake is and at professional rules enforcement level you're not even allowed to stop the match you just have to go get a judge and the reason that policy is what it is, uh, in addition to potential outside assistance situations, is that the players almost always know more than the spectators. They have more information, they're more invested, they know what's going on. And the fact that it is written into tournament policy like that, at, at, like they've clearly made the assumption that that is the case. And the people who write that policy are pretty smart. So... That also applies to a situation like that. Like, there's been tons of times where, uh, uh, like, I, I have a, a memory. I was playing KCI in a, a modern tournament, and uh, this local person who fancies himself pretty smart, after, I, I, like, comboed off. I won my game, and uh, the, the guy was like, you could have won that so much faster. You had the deterministic, like, you know, KCI, like, overpay mana loop like six iterations earlier than you started using it. And it's like, I was playing around surgical extraction. I don't know if they had it, but I could beat it. So I did like, I, why, why get fancy and lose to something when you don't have to, like you're just wrong. Like, sure. Maybe surgical is not in that deck. Maybe, maybe I did work harder than I needed to, but it was for a reason. It's not because I just didn't understand the loop. So just, uh, it's okay to say like, you could have iterated that combo earlier, but except when they say why they didn't. So your losses can be disappointing still, even when we talk about, you know, even considering everything that we've talked about so far, like you're still a human and sometimes that stuff is still going to sing, sting. Like you, you might feel sad or disappointed or angry, what, whatever. Like you're allowed to have those feelings. Like you don't need to be like beep boop. I'm a robot. I feel no emotions. Like emotions are probably part of the reason why many of us play Magic: The Gathering. It's it's fun. It's exciting. But remember, like for every time you win, someone else loses, and sometimes that'll be abundantly clear. At GP New Jersey, I played against one of the people that I traveled up to the event with in the bubble round on day one and one of us was going to make it and one of us wasn't and that sort of thing happens and it's a great success for one person and sadness for the other try to be good to people yep the community's small yeah yeah like imagine if you won the tournament like 100 percent win rate on the day swept the whole thing but every single opponent you beat tilted off said you're a lucky scum and uh you don't deserve it you played bad 
Like, how good would you actually feel at the end of the day? You know, prize money in the pocket, maybe a trophy, maybe a plaque, something cool to take home, maybe a pro tour invite, but you were just treated poorly by 11 people along the way. Like, that sucks. And you're obviously not in charge of the behavior of everyone in the room, but you can be one person who's not going to do that. And like Phil started to say, the magic community is small. You will see these people again. You may have mutual friends. There may come a time when you need a ride to an event. Maybe you need to split a hotel room, borrow cards. Maybe you want to go out to a dinner with a group and that person is in the group. Like these things all are going to come up if you become a regular tournament attendee. And having a network of people to help you out with this sort of stuff is important. And I definitely have people in my network who I would not piss on to put out a fire. Like these people are just like, they have been shitty and they have been unrepentantly shitty and haven't learned anything. And no, I don't want to spend six hours in a car with them. No, I don't want to have to chase them down for hotel money after the weekend's over. No, I don't trust them with my cards. Like, and the magic community is extremely generous. Like, uh, I have handed sleeved 75 legacy decks to people I've met for the first time. Uh, I mean, internet rapport, of course, but like a Discord friend or something needs a deck for Eternal Weekend. Like, yeah, sure, here you go. And that's something I'm willing to do. Like, you have to be actively shitty to not get that that layup from me. And there are plenty of people who are in that pool. And that's totally on them. And you just don't want to be that, that person. That said, I'll say this. For years, I held grudges against people based on one act they did. And then over time, I've gone, well, I'm not the same person I was in 2011 or 2012 when I was a larger shithead than I possibly could be now. Um, Just like I've grown as a person. Maybe I'm still an asshole. That's entirely possible. But I am not as bad as I was then. Like, I like to believe that I've grown as a person. But over the last few years, I've started to let go some of those grudges because I realized that some of those uh, interactions I've had with people, they're not the same person either. Or at least I hope that they're not. Um, they might've tried to scum me at a PTQ or, uh, they might've written a mean tweet about me in 2012, but like people change and like they grow. And sometimes I think it's just easier to let that stuff go than let it harbor as well. Um, just throwing that out there. Yeah. So, uh, if I may sprinkle in a number of, uh, uh, cliches here, uh, these are all things, they're all corny, but they're all things that like I do float through my head that help me through situations like that. Um, uh, like one of them, one thing I heard is hate is too powerful an emotion to waste on someone you don't like. And another is hatred is drinking poison and hoping they die. And uh, there, there's just a number of things like that where just holding these grudges uh it's not constructive um and you can be angry um uh, oh another one is uh the difference between pain and suffering uh life is pain but suffering is optional and in a lot of cases that's true like there's gonna be shitty people there's gonna be haters there's gonna be uh douche lords in your youtube comments but like you can you can carry that and you can feel that or you can wonder like oh What's going on in their life that they needed to like pick a YouTube channel to be negative on? Like, too bad. Sorry. Thanks for the engagement. I hope your life gets better. Like, you can walk, carry that, or you can just leave it where you found it. And uh, 
that that's all part of just general positive outlook on life. And the last thing that I want to close with is a big lesson from the unique once in a lifetime experience that we've all had here with the COVID shutdown. Um, We've taken magic tournaments for granted in the past, probably Um, like if you knew you weren't going to see someone or play magic for a year and a half, would you tilt? Like, if you know you're not just going to be back at it next weekend, would you have a bad time uh, because uh, you don't win every match or would you enjoy the gathering? And I honestly cannot imagine ever tilting off about a loss again, uh, even even internally, like even the quiet tilt on the inside, like after losing magic for over a year now, going on a year and a half, it'll probably be close to two before big events come back. And like, I just cannot imagine at this point in my life having experienced this, this, uh, drought of that experience, like ever just being like, Oh, must be nice. I hope we've all learned to be better than that.